Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser. You know who uttered that famous phrase, Murph, Ken? Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi, indeed, who in his life was considered the greatest American football coach of his generation, of all time, maybe. In death, he's turned into a sort of human inspirational quote machine. Mm. A sort of dead Tony Robbins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. From which all these yeah. beautiful life-affirming quotes are, are extracted. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm gonna no, have to. What a, what a touching tribute! <laughs> yeah, a dead Tony Robbins. Okay, but I'm gonna have to disagree with Lombardi on this one. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible to be both a good loser and a great winner, as evidenced by Serena Williams in Melbourne at the weekend, going for her 22nd Grand Slam title, which makes her, I think, a pretty successful sports person. Just yeah. the fact she was going for this, beaten in a huge shock by Angelique Kerber of Germany in a brilliant three-setter, and just what happened after was really struck me. It was an amazing match, first of all, but. Serena was a re- so Kerber, you know, hits the deck as players generally do when they've won, kind of collapse on the ground and joy. By the time she stands up, there's Serena on her side of the court, uh, embracing her, hugging her, telling her some, just giving her some really nice words of encouragement, of congratulations, whatever they were. Then Serena is ushered up to give her runners-up speech. Again, really gracious and stuff that you, you know, just being as nice as possible while seeming genuine. I thought as well. Uh, and after that was the most telling moment. So Kerber then goes up and gives her a speech. Is unbelievably excited about everything. It, I thought she, she nearly talked for as long as she played. Was talking on and on and thanking everybody. Thanking Serena. Thought made how great it was to win her first Grand Slam. And she finished. The guy who was emceeing the whole thing said, said something along the lines of, well, I think we can see Angelique is quite excited about things. And everybody's sort of laughing. And you can see her go to Serena I didn't make a fool of myself there, did I? And she's just like, no, 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 you're good, you're good. That's certainly the, the way it looked, mm. which was, which is lovely and which I think is is quite possible. In fairness, in tennis, certainly in modern tennis, it seems to happen quite a lot in the men's side of the game as well. They always, although Andy Murray did look like there was a bit of a gritted teeth element to his, <laughs> to his uh, runners-up speech It's kind of difference. Like, you can be really disappointed and be... And not be a bad loser. Yeah. You know and Murray's I mean? not a bad loser yeah. either, it should be said. Yeah. He's had plenty of practice, so... Um, Sorry, was that unnecessarily harsh? Possibly unnecessarily harsh. Well, I mean, he's lost five of them. He has lost five Australian Australian Open finals already, which Mm. is not four of them to the same guy. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So you do you agree or disagree with me that you can be both a good loser and a top level sports person? Yeah, you have to just be a dick after you've lost. No, I think I think um, 
Vince, well, I don't really think that's what Vince Lombardi is saying, first of all. No? I don't think he's saying that you have to be a bad loser in order not to be a loser. I think he's saying that if you're a good loser, you're a loser. Like, by definition. Yeah. Um, so... And therefore you have a loser's mentality. Which is to say, show me a bad say, loser and you show me an asshole. Yeah, but I mean, you, you're a loser by definition because you have lost, not because you lose. Mm -hmm. If you see what I mean, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. What he's saying is... That person's lost. It doesn't really matter to me how they necessarily behave. I also happen to think he's overrated as a quotes machine. You think? Yeah. I mean, he basically just comes out with all these kind of crypto-fascist lines about, you know, being rude to slaughtering the enemy, um, you know, w winning being everything, and then orders his players to go out and crack their heads into each other mm -hmm. loads of times on the training field. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if there's, if there's necessarily really all that much there to teach us at this mm -hmm. remove, you know? Yeah, it's nearly fifty years. I think he's and, overrated. You know, yeah, as a, just you know, not as a not as a coach, not as a as a as a man of sport, but uh, you're saying machine, you're saying there's nothing that can be gleaned from the quote: "Perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence." I don't think he said that. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like Jared Hudie. That doesn't sound. That does sound <laughs> like Tony Robbins or Jared yeah. Hudie. That okay. actually doesn't sound like. Uh, yeah, there's there's none of the sort of almost militaristic bombast that usually accompanies yeah. a Vince Lombardi quote. I imagine Vince Lombardi would be more like, you know, God damn it, you know, like wanting to uh, press on past uh, Berlin all the way to Moscow. I'd say that would, <laughs> that would have been, <laughs> he just strikes me as that kind of guy. Yeah. You know, I don't know if he talked about uh, achieving excellence that much. We'll chat about Serena on today's Irish Times Second Captain's podcast. Oshie McConville and Carol Mannion are in shortly to examine the concussion controversy that dominated the opening weekend of the Allianz Football League. Carol's been here before on this topic, actually, in this very studio. Last time he was here, he talked in really striking detail, if you remember this interview, about the two concussions that he suffered. And if I remember correctly, he told us that he'd consider retiring if he got another one. So it's something he's engaged with quite a lot, and quite a lot more than some players probably have. So it's well-placed to chat about that. And Pep Guardiola's moved to Man City. Well, that's covered in the football show, Ken, in the football mm. podcast out now. But I suppose we can expand on it here, yeah. as it is the big story of the day. Yeah, exciting it's, news. It's, uh, it is. It's, it's very exciting. And um, we, thought, we talked a little bit about the kind of pall of depression that's probably going to be hanging over Manchester United now. And you can see... Just look at the internet. You can see, like, it appears to me about three quarters of Manchester United fans worldwide are currently on social media demanding that the club appoints Jose Mourinho forthwith. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, because they would have loved to get Pep, but now they have no choice but to turn to Jose. But this makes no sense to me at all. There's no continuity between wanting... There's no coherence in wanting Pep Guardiola as your number one choice and then wanting... Jose Mourinho is your number two choice. They're just completely different managers. The only level on which there there is some kind of continuity between them is that they're both, you know, big celebrity managers who've won a lot of trophies. But in terms of the the kind of what they mean from a football point of view, they're, they're opposites. But Manchester United don't seem to... Nobody connected to Manchester United seems to know what they want at the moment. The Manchester United way, Owen. Well, the Manchester United bloody way. But Mourinho's not going to bring them whatever that is. Well, if the Manchester United trophies, of course, if the Manchester United way involves uh, grinding City into the dust beneath their iron heel, <laughs> then maybe Jose Mourinho does give them a chance of doing that. I mean, because the one thing that we can say about Jose Mourinho is that he he has caused Pep Guardiola to lose his mind before. He did eventually send him packing from Spain. Uh, you know, leaving Barcelona a burnt out, a desolated figure. <laughs> well, maybe this is the plan then. 
that, to ensure that Pep Guardiola stays no longer than three years as Man City manager. To make him lose his mind again. Maybe yeah. he can make his beard fall out this time. You know, Pep will, will depart completely hairless on the head uh, after another. I mean, this time it wouldn't even be he's sitting in one city while Jose is in the other city. It literally a couple of miles down the road. How many, how many extremely expensive restaurants are there in Manchester? I mean, there's that place Wings that Louis van Gaal keeps talking about. Yeah, well, I would say that the the likelihood of the two of them meeting on a evening out after about six months, I mean, it shrinks to to nothing. I mean, they would almost certainly have to have met each other over the course of six months. And I mean, Pep Guardiola doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would go into a restaurant and you know just forget about it. I would say I I can see Pep Guardiola anxiously eyeing the door of every restaurant in Manchester <laughs> that he's in. Up until the day arrives that Jose actually walks into that restaurant. Well, maybe he would go his to... His worst fears will have been... I wouldn't be surprised if Pep ended up staying out of the uh, staying out of the city, you know? Mm. Um, and maybe going to sort of those type of restaurants that um, that the two guys go to in the trip. Yeah. You, you know, uh, uh, sir, Steve uh, Coogan and Rob Ryden. Motorway service stations, is it? No, not motorway service stations. No, these sort of posh restaurants attached to like country hotels. You know what I mean? They're going on a on a, on a trip, sort of uh, reviewing these places for the Observer or whatever. Pep might uh, Pep might end up frequenting that circuit mm. while Jose ruled the city centre. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure that he would be the one who would be out there looking for the confrontation. You know, where is Pep? Where? Is he? <laughs> so we're talking about a complete fantasy situation here, but you can see how. But it's not that fantastic. Interesting, this could be. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's. Pep Guardiola is the Man City manager as of July first. Jose Mourinho is Jose Mourinho is probably the favorite, isn't he, to take yeah. over as Manchester United manager? He must be. He must be. I, I mean, there's just was. so there's, there's so many reasons to just and there's nothing press that button. There is nothing that has come out that I've read anyway that's contradicted the story that he's going to take over. Uh, you know, Miguel Delaney talks about the letter that he has apparently written to Manchester United. Sure, George Mendes comes out and says, well, that's nonsense. Well, George Mendes comes out and it's says... It's ridiculous and absurd to think that Jose Mourinho would write a letter to any club asking for a job. Yeah, which, as we stressed last week, wasn't necessarily what Miguel Delaney had actually reported. reported. But my point is, I don't think Manchester United came out and crushed that story. I don't think they've come out and crushed the Mourinho story at all, which they could quite well, easily do. Easily. And it would actually probably be, I think, would be to their... Uh, benefit if they didn't want him to kill it now because it is going to just hang over them. On, uh, so it strikes me that they definitely want him to be their manager, or at least he is one of maybe two people on a on a short list. Yeah, who that other person is, Murph? I actually don't know. And I do. I get the feeling that there's a lot of support for him there. A lot of Manchester United fans. I mean, there are people who passionately believe that he can be the silver bullet to stop Guardiola. There are people who frankly don't even really care that much but but want to see this happen you know they're going to take um, each other down take their take both clubs down it's going to be spectacular um well i i, I, I don't know if guardiola's necessarily given any sign previously of taking a club down no he will now he's a builder he finally, he, he's a he's a yeah. he's a creator Mourinho is is like that thing in fraggle rock you know if guardiola's the doozer Mourinho comes along and just like starts. Yeah. I, I see them as that's that they're, they're they're opposing roles in the ecosystem i don't think guardiola's going to take a club down Oshin and Carol have arrived in the studio. How are you, lads? On his form. Hey, on. The form is pretty good, pretty good. We're starting with a concussion controversy, Carol, this year. Uh, yeah. Lee, Lee Keegan um, stayed on for 10 minutes after he was taken off, which is... Uh, 
I know the kind of thing we've talked to you in the past and you've taken an active yeah. interest in this we've chatted to you on this show and chatted to you on TV as well so I know you're quite attuned to these things were you surprised to see him stay on? Yeah surprised and frustrated in one way because there is a lot of talk about this in the media in the last few years in all sports and uh, just very frustrating to see the incident what happened uh, that no action was taken a lot quicker uh, and I know Stephen Rochard came out after and said that his uh, team were looking on the TV and they thought they saw that he was in a bad way and they took him off but that was 10 minutes after the incident and everyone watching on TV would clearly have seen that he had to come off straight away so why did it take them 10 minutes to see on the TV uh, the other thing as well was I think actually Lee Keegan about 7 or 8 minutes after the incident was tackling back on a cork forward and he fell at full speed now he didn't hit his head off the ground but a, a, a collision like that with the ground at that speed would definitely have impacted his upper body yeah. Uh, and possibly with the hit earlier, that's why he was down on his hands and knees about two minutes later, and then that's when they took him off. So it's uh, it's surprising to see that Mayo didn't react quicker, considering what happened to him two years ago against Kerry, when Aidan O'Shea and Kieran O'Connor both went back on the pitch. Uh, and it just is something that really has to be addressed. It cannot happen again. So the apology that they issued, or the, the uh, clarification, when they said the Mayo medical team accepted Lee should have been withdrawn as precaution a number of minutes earlier uh, when the collision occurred. Player welfare is of paramount importance to all involved, but Mayo GAA and members of the GA medical team have been to the forefront of player welfare initiatives in the GA nationally. That statement, does that mitigate the issue for I you? I think it makes it, it makes it look like they realise straight away they got it wrong. And they're just trying to try and basically just apologize straight away. They realize they're wrong and just apologize. The other thing to mention is, though, in this, Lee Keegan clearly remonstrated with them to keep him on the pitch. Owen Cadigan was told by Con Murphy, "You're coming off." There was no, there was no remonstration. Lee Keegan was clearly, you could see, I'm staying on, telling the doctor I'm not coming off. So the player had a role to play in this as well. He he wouldn't come off the pitch. Yeah, and so it's the strangest thing of all about it. Really, in a lot of ways, is it's the first league game of the year. You're getting hammered. The game is over. The game is finished. You know, if if a player can't see at that stage, and if uh, medical teams aren't just immediately saying, right, well, if there's even the slightest chance of a concussion here, the game is gone. There's no sporting reason for us whatsoever to take a risk with this guy at all. You know, that's kind of what makes. I mean, if Mayor were a point up or a point down, then you know, I don't know. Does that make it any? You know, it it, it shouldn't. But maybe that comes into yeah. someone's thinking more they, more so. They, you know, had the experience of this two years ago, yeah. like so they should have their protocols correct on this so even if the player was remonstrating I'm staying on I'm staying on the doctor should have gone to Stephen Rogers and said put up his number on the board and when you see the number on the board you just come off yeah and uh, <coughs> you're right Moff it shouldn't come down to whether you know the game's gone or not if, if the lad's hurt and visibly hurt he should be uh, coming off and the thing about uh, what happened yesterday was that uh, in a situation like that you got to err on the side of caution and that's the way we've got to go and it doesn't matter if the game's in the melting pot or it's not or you're 11 or 12 points down you know I think he just he just has to go and we've got to learn from uh, situations I guess I think it's refreshing to be honest that Mayo that the Mayo medical team and the and the coaching staff have come out and said that you know they've made a genuine mistake and and we learn from it, and that is refreshing because normally in situations, I guess people bury their head in the sand. Like Fair Sean Moffat did want to take him off, and the player was the one that made Tony McIntyre made, a, Which made is a substitute. Uh, you know, let's get him off. Let's let's substitute him towards the sideline. And I, I felt as if at that stage, if he was going to be walked off, but he then, he, as you say, he refused to go. I uh, hosted a concussion chat in Trinity last week in the Science Gallery, and Michael Darren McCauley was the sort of player representative. He's uh, an ambassador for Acquired Brain Injury Ireland. And, you know, we were talking about this increased awareness among players about concussion and how they think of it differently now than they would have two or three years ago 
I don't know, though. When I see that kind of thing, it seems to me that may- maybe after a game, maybe when a player is told, OK, you can't play the next game and you have and, and if especially if they're suffering symptoms afterwards, maybe then they in the cold light of day, they, they do accept these things. But in the heat of the battle, and as Murph says, even in a inconsequential enough match, this, this they, is not they, much of a battle. The natural know? instinct still seems to be for players to battle on through this. Yeah, it is. Uh, Lee Keegan was also captain yesterday for Mayo, so he maybe had that extra pressure. Uh, they had scored a few points in the minutes before that. He thought maybe they'd come back into the game. He didn't want to be off the pitch. But uh, yeah, you're dead right. Uh, Owen Cadigan seemed to have no uh, issues with coming off straight away. Didn't there wasn't one uh, iota of him uh, seemed to be remonstrating with his doctor. So yeah, some players I think are on spe- up to speed in this. But I think a lot of them aren't, and a lot of them still yeah. just want. And it might seem unfair like to be criticising the guy for for essentially being brave and and following his natural instinct. But yeah. you would think that that does have to. That we always hear that this is what's changing. Still, but maybe it's well, not changing I still, think, I still think that thinking's not. Uh, not changing on what, it. What about among managers? Do you get the sense that do you know more about it than you would have a couple of years ago? Well, look at on. It would be you know if you had asked me this question three four years ago, I'd be saying, listen, if there's something wrong with the lad, but you know in a situation where the pressure's on, one of your top players goes down, and you're thinking, of course, in in the back of your head, you're thinking the first thing is you know player welfare. I want to see this lad. I mean, this is more important than a football match. Mm. I mean, that's the first thing. But also when you're battling with yourself as well because you're saying, you know, could he go on? You know, if anything good could come out of yesterday's bad situation, it's the fact that, you know, we're talking about it again and, you know, the subject has been raised. Yeah, yeah and I, I think, uh, sorry, Carol, but yeah. just to say that uh, in, in in rugby, say, the, the it's nearly... There's an issue every game, nearly. You know that that it's it's so much more ingrained in the culture now that concussion is a is a live danger. I mean, I think that if you're if you're talking about waiting for the GA culture to cat to get to a situation where if a player has a concussion, he he makes the decision himself. I I've just suffered a brain injury. I can't play here. I I think necessarily it's go, it's going to take a little longer for it to happen in the GA than it did in rugby because it it it's just it's 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 a it's a part of nearly every game in rugby, whereas you don't see concussions in every game in GA or, an- or anything like it. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe maybe it's a little it's a little much to be asking our GA players to have, to be as self aware as as our rugby players are getting slowly but surely. Yeah, the nature of the game obviously is there's less hits up in the upper body. Uh, the statistics are it's well below one percent of injuries reported are concussion in the GA, but f- the, the policing of concussion at lower levels and at club games has to come from what is done at inter-county level and the the medical backup and the resources are probably not there at club level for this to be carried out properly but if the inter-county game gets sorted correctly and all the proper protocols are carried out and are clear on TV then that is what will filter down eventually. Like I think it's uh, it's not going to cost too much for the GEA to have an independent doctor at games going forward Okay, and make him make that call. May, uh, on the fields or in terms of the actual uh, result it wasn't great for Mayo either Oisin would you be worried for them after one game? No I wouldn't be making any judgement call at this stage the only thing and this point that me, myself and Carol were talking about is that over the last number of years uh, Mayo haven't found that those extra couple of players so when you go deep into that squad uh, it, do, it looks very flaky and it looked particularly flaky uh, yesterday the only thing I would say about them is that if these Guys are gonna, you know, bring the, if these guys are gonna come on and step up to the mark, they're gonna need more than one game. We can't judge them on one game. Uh, I wouldn't be judging anybody. I think you get a fair reflection around the fourth game in the league because you've had the first two games, which you always get some freak results, even though there wasn't that many this weekend. 
Uh, then there's a break, and then you've got you've got another game. I think the game after that is the time we where I would look at games and say, you know, this is proper championship. Uh, I was at the game in, in Crow Park the other night, and both teams just went out and played a game of football. Simple as that. There was no there was no sweepers. There was no uh, major tactics going in. Both teams were just, you know, uh, I suppose out there, and they were gonna try and express themselves as best they could. There was a huge amount of mistakes made, but. That's early season football, you know, and that's football in January, even though conditions were very, very good. Um, but you got to even at this stage on look at the lakes of Dublin and say, you know, we're only going at 50% if that the other night and still absolutely blue carry away. Yeah, yeah like yeah. The, the, the one thing I would say about Mayo is that it, the injury profile that they have at the moment would suggest that it's, it's, not, it's not even a case of getting through the first two weeks and there's three weeks off and they'll be fully back they'll be back up to like a full complement by the time the third and fourth games come around apparently there yeah. a lot of their problems Mostly. are slightly longer term yeah. so i think that you know the survival will be the key and if they beat roscommon and they beat down you know they're the two games they're probably focusing on more so than anything else uh, and they they get a chance to stay in the division i mean in ways it's maybe not the worst place for Stephen no. Rochford to be in that they're going to lose a few games this year. They're going to have to play a lot of guys that aren't the, you know, the 16 or 17 players that we've seen representing Mayo over the last four or five years. And maybe one or two of them will step up. I mean, Conor O'Shea yesterday, for instance. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I totally look for... Like, he, st- he started against Ross Common yeah. in 2014. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jeremy O'Connor's first game. Yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we haven't really seen him since then. Yeah, he's really uh, improved. Yeah, and he just, he just seemed ready for it in a way that he wasn't at all in 2014. And you'd think that if they lose a few games, Conor O'Shea kicks two or three points from play every game, Mayo stay in Division 1. That's probably not the worst result in the world for from Stephen Rochford's point of view. Plus the fact they're going to have a lot of fresh players you know, come Championship. If they get a bit of game time before Championship time, they'll get a probably, no disrespect, but they'll probably, in, in Connacht, they'll probably get away with it. Maybe uh, a little bit more than they would you know, on, a, on yeah. a, in qu- come quarter-final stage. But they should have a bit of game time and... Uh, at that stage and they'll have a lot of fresh players yeah, and uh, we're obviously at the end of the first week of the National League so perspective can be, uh, <laughs> yeah. can be an unusual thing when we look back on this year Mayo's championship performance is really going to dictate how we review them for this year uh, yeah word on Roscommon Carl in some ways could Kevin McStay do with them still being in Division 2 for, or, is, or is it great to just go out play these big teams in Division 1 uh, a higher level than they've been at for a long time. And okay, if you take a... Not that they took a beating at the weekend, but if you do take a beating or two here and there, you learn from that? No, no, certainly. It's the place to be. It's the place yeah. to be. And if you bounce between Division 1 and Division 2 over the next three or four years, like, bad, the way yeah. some teams have done, and eventually, like Monaghan, they're now established in Division 1, that's the way you're going to get up to that level. Uh, yeah, they heard, they learned some harsh lessons yesterday in the second half. Found it very difficult to get the ball out of defence. Uh, Monaghan's pressing game and actual tackling and um, and Roscommon's naivety in trying to go through those tackles. Monaghan turned them over and got scores and goals off it. Like, and that's what came, came against Roscommon in the end. But no, there were some very there were a lot of positives for Roscommon. They did find a couple of players uh, again yesterday that hadn't been on the panel for a few years. Fintan Craig was back, had a really, mm. really good game. Hadn't played since about 2010 and 2011 with us. Uh, so he's a good development to see him back. Enda Smith Looked, looked promising again uh, as he has been over the last couple of years Niall McInerney a cornerback had a really strong game as well and Roscommon defended pretty well for most of the game but it was just that transition from defence to attack in the second half they had real difficulty The more time to spend in Division 1 they'll get a little bit cuter they'll be able to see games see games out and they're playing against uh, Trident tested as far as Monaghan was concerned as the more the game went on the more we seen them they were looking more comfortable and 
that's as probably as parochial a venue as you're going to get, hmm. you know, in the, yeah. in Division One National League. So, um, you know, yesterday they could have picked up at least a point, you know, which certainly would have helped them down the lane. I haven't watched down. I don't think you know they're capable of picking up any points in that division. So it's up to Roscommon then to try and you know pick up. Like even going down to Kerry next week because Kerry for the first three or four weeks, of the, uh, first three or four games in it's the National League. Not a bad League, second game, actually. Yeah, it's especially the way they played the other night. You would have an opportunity of, of beating Kerry if they can do that. Then they've got a slim chance of staying in the division. What's confidence like about Roscommon? Shane Kern was in here last year talking about All Ireland titles in the not too distant future. <laughs> well, no, definitely like. Getting up to Division 1 is a confidence booster. The championship performance last year definitely tempered uh, expectation in the panel. Uh, but no, no, the confidence is good. Uh, I think they would have got confidence from yesterday. They did play well for long stretches of the game. Uh, they were able to break through Monaghan in the first half. They were able to get the goal. They were able to create the goal. Uh, they created a goal chance second half. So no, they were definitely very competitive yesterday and they did let a couple of points slip there yesterday, yeah. I think. And the, the, weird, the weird thing about it as well was that it was just exactly the kind of game that Roscommon kind of... You, watching it, it was like... If they were in Division One for even one year, yeah. they'd win this game. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it was it was it was that was I think we the real thing. We were on the yeah. terraces there. Conor Romanis was having an off day for about fifty minutes. We were thinking this this is a great start. Now we can get the two points there, but it just slipped away at the end. All right, good to have the football back, Carl O'Shane. Thanks a million. Thanks a lot. And he is my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. the humorous competition. I saw that. Important man for my selection. To go back to the concussion for a moment and just how responsible, I, I th- think it's well covered the, what Mayo should have done there and as we said, they've come out and said, listen, we, we got it wrong and uh, you know we, we, we're, we're holding our hands up on that one. In terms of the player responsibility, we discussed it a little bit there. I mentioned Michael Darren McCauley. Actually, I did ask him straight out in that chat the other night, if you are... Concuss, or if you think you might have an issue, it's 10 minutes to go in the All-Ireland semi-final. They're Baddy Bowden of a club semi-final coming up. 10 minutes to go, really close game. You get a knock. Nobody's noticed that you're maybe a little bit worse for wear, but you feel yourself that this could well be a concussion. W- would you take yourself off? And he said, yeah, definitely. He said, knowing what I know now, I definitely would. But you can ask that to players and I'd say you, I don't know if you get a 50-50 split but you would definitely if everyone's being honest I'm talking mm. about as Michael Dara um, obviously was and I don't know how many of them would actually take themselves off in the heat of battle Yeah and I mean you you could even ask the question before a game starts and then when the 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 mm. incident actually happens and you're actually put in the situation I mean yeah. you can say all you like that you would take yourself off mm. but I don't think you actually know the answer to the question until you're uh, presented with but it's a really important uh, uh, the way Carl's talking there it is a really important part of it that players do that the message does start getting through to them as you said mm, it, it's not necessarily something that is ingrained in GA players um, and maybe that'll take a while mm. for them to actually think that way no I, I think that the most powerful testimony and the, the the testimony that's changed how rugby players look at it is from their own teammates who have gone through it or teammates of teammates 
you know, the, the idea of uh, a concussion, a, a brain injury, you know, you can be presented with the with the di- the medical mm. diagnosis all you like, but until you talk to someone like John Fogarty or you read that article about Shantane, Shantane Happe, uh, or, you know, you, maybe you're on the Lions tour with Shantane Happe and you read that article and you say, right, well, that's the that's the person that I know that I met mm. and that's what he's going through at the moment as a result of concussion. I think that's the most compelling testimony that you can have and until there are more people like Carol who have actually spoken about their concussions suffered on a GA field, I think it, it is going to exist more in the in the you know sort of out in the ether for GA players. There's a certain uh, element that the, yeah that everyone will say the right thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. And from on, on all sides will say the right thing, but it's not necessarily until some you know the, when it pops up these massive high profile ones like Aiden mm. O'Shea, for example, uh, Roy O'Carroll a few years ago, the All Ireland final. That I think people really th- think about it that much. But we'll move on because Ken is going to tell us what's in the Irish Times Second Captain's Football podcast right now. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you shawny man? Well, Owen, we uh, talked a bit about John Terry, uh, who's been let go by Chelsea at the end of the season. Uh, We talked a bit about John Delaney, who, well... There's a very mysterious presence these days in, in this country. You never quite know where he's going to turn up. Um, uh, so we talked about him and them alone. And we're going to talk. Uh, we also talked a bit about Pep. Uh, Pep taking over two years. There may have been a couple of FA Cup goal descriptions as well. <sighs> what I'm saying is uh, the, the FA Cup did take place over the weekend and some goals were scored. <laughs> some goals were scored. The second point is that I'm a journalist. Judy bound to put those two things together. It's not as long as last time, don't worry. Okay, we (laughs) are joined by Brett Phillips uh, from Melbourne. We've been talking to Brett a couple of times during the Australian Open, which is uh, concluded over the weekend. Brett works for SEN Radio there in Melbourne. And we'll get to the women's final. Brett, I teed that up a little bit earlier on, uh, one of the issues surrounding that. But just on the men's side, first of all, Novak Djokovic, and this is 11 Grand Slam titles now. He's never really received the adoration his rivals enjoy, and he would admit that himself. What about in Australia? Six of his 11 titles have occurred in Melbourne. Do the Australian fans love him yet? Yeah, I think Owen, he's, you know, become a really respected figure. You know, I wouldn't have said in the early piece, uh, people were, you know, really enamoured with uh, Novak. Um, you know, particularly when he came on the scene as a younger guy when he's first Australian Open. I remember, you know, his parents being in the players' box and, uh, look, his dad obviously has continued to sort of come back over the years. Mum, not so much, but they were pretty animated back then. I think that ruffled a few feathers. Uh, yeah, maybe it's a bit of that sort of uh, Serbian heritage, if you like. Yeah, but I think, you know, as, as he's become a, uh, a great champion and a real statesman of the game and a great spokesperson, if you like, for the game, I think he's, you know, won fans uh, all over the globe. I mean, I, I think any time he probably goes up against Roger Federer in Melbourne, Federer always... Uh, had the the biggest support. There was, I think, you know, the underdog element last night for Andy, a bit like for Angelique Kerber on the weekend. I think the Melbourne crowd loved to see an underdog get up. But in the end, uh, when you're watching a guy 
uh, perform at his absolute peak. I think you, sometimes you've got to sit back and just enjoy that. Some of those other players, Federer is, you know, he's still there on 17 titles and he's still performing to an outrageous level given how long he's been around. Nadal is stuck on 14 and I guess people are writing him off at this stage. Sampras got to 14 but was held back maybe by his, uh, well, his lack of ability to win the, the French Open among, among others. Djokovic, 28 years of age, 11 Grand Slams, he's healthy. He's got a pretty amazing all-round game. Is there anything, do you think, is there any drawback or anything to suggest that he actually won't go past them all, that he won't go past, ultimately, Federer on 17 Grand Slams? That's a great point, Owen. I mean, it's a conversation we started to have on the weekend. I mean, we've always considered Roger to be the greatest of all time and, uh, you know, will, will he ever be passed? And right now we're saying, absolutely, there's a big chance that Novak can get past him because right now Roger can't beat Novak. Um, you know, there's certainly been... Yeah, different schools of thought of when Roger is actually going to wind it up. If you listen to Roger, he says he's going to go for another couple of years. Or other people who think that, well, if he can't beat Djokovic, what's there left to play for? He certainly wants to go to an Olympic Games. How long he's going to be on the scene, we don't know. Um, yeah, Nadal has certainly lost his uh, aura and uh, a little bit of invincibility. Murray's a very good player, but certainly not uh, the level of Djokovic. So, you know, there's no reason to suggest he couldn't win all four this year. Desperate to get his hands on the French Open, where he's been a three-time runner-up, and you know, we know Stan Vavrinka played one of the matches of his life, uh, and just blew Novak off centre court there at Roland Garros last year. So he could win all four this year, but I think over the next two to three years, as long as he stays fit and healthy, and his conditioning is unbelievable, he can probably at least average, you know, three slams a year, uh, because the younger guys are still a bit off from getting there. You know, we're talking about Roundish and Nishikori, and then the younger brigade underneath that, the Kyrgios and Kokonakis and Tomic are all sort of, you know, early to mid-twenties, so he's got a real period here to you know, close that gap and certainly equal uh, Roger and maybe pass him. Are we sort of, we're past the age of rivalries now, are we? There was the Federer-Nadal rivalry, which kept us going for a while. There, I don't know if there really has been a Nadal-Djokovic rivalry, certainly not of late, it's just Djokovic winning. Are we, just, are we back to one guy railroading the rest, as Federer was doing in the early part of his career, and, and essentially going for going for an all-time record? Or do you see anyone, have we written a dad off too early? Is there somebody we're not seeing here who can build a rivalry with this man? No, I, I think you're right. I, I think uh, I think we're watching Djokovic re- replicate what Federer did at his absolute peak going back, uh, what, a decade ago. So he is that good back at the moment. I mean, he's just, he, his uh, fitness level, his conditioning, his flexibility, his ability to turn defence into offence. I mean, if you look at Novak's game, you wouldn't say, gee, he's got a brilliant serve or the best forehand in the business or the best backhand in the business. He's just a very good, all-court, solid player. Hits with great depth. I mean, apart from one blowout match at the Australian Open where we still can't believe that statistic where he made 100 unforced errors. Generally speaking, across his matches, you know, he keeps that uh, well under control, but he's just got an ability to take his uh, game to another level. And, you know, as Pam Shriver tweeted on the weekend, you know, this, this is where Boris Becker earns his keep. In these big games, big tournaments, that's why he was brought in for Novak to really capitalise. Um, you know, he, all his preparation is geared up for the slams. So he is just doing it so much better than everyone else at the moment. I think there is a genuine gap. I mean, you feel for guys like Thomas Burdick, he'll probably never win a slam, and he's been a pretty decent player inside the top ten. Joe Wilfred Songer, you know, been around a long time. 
Uh, they just they just don't have that mental side covered. I mean, you know, to think once upon a time Djokovic was a pretty flaky character. I mean, right now he is just made of steel, and um, yeah, physically, mentally, he's just in the zone. Novak and playing brilliant tennis. So, Andy Murray's lost five finals there in Australia. Does Murray have the mental side covered? Do you think? Oh, I think it's a fascinating one with Andy. Um, you know, I mean, to watch his matches, I mean, he expends. Simon, so much energy, you know, constantly looking at his players' box, muttering away. It's it's there for everyone to see. You know, Djokovic, I think, has probably um, kept his emotions in check a lot better as he's got older. I mean, Murray's probably, you know, it's so unfortunate he's playing in this era. He probably, in another era, he might have won a half a dozen to eight uh, Grand Slams and been up there with, you know, the likes of Andre Agassi and others. But he's playing against such champions, whether it's been Federer or Djokovic on the Dow, just been able to do it a little bit better. I mean, Andy's got great court craft. He's skillful. He can um, he can play any shot on the court so well, and he's he is yeah extremely fit, but just not as fit and not as good as Djokovic. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is the problem. I and mean, you know, Roger might at an 18th if it wasn't for Novak. Andy might actually win a major if it wasn't for Novak. Uh, that's how yeah, that's how good he is at the top. Um, you know, I think Murray. I think Murray's changed a bit in the last twelve months. You know, I think you know, maybe the perspective of getting married. He's about to have a, a child in his life. Um, you know, it's probably a little bit more to just tennis. That might actually help him uh, relieve a bit of that pressure on court. So I think there's still the opportunity while he's 28 over the next two years, maybe to win. A major, um, but you know he's, he's going to be right there in the conversation. Certainly, uh, I suppose he could do worse than have a look at Angelique Kerber's performance in the women's final against Serena Williams. It, it, struck, it struck me that there were so many moments during that. It was an incredible match, and there were so many moments even in the third set after be, after breaking Serena, but then being broken back on a couple of occasions that Kerber could have easily thrown in the towel, and not even thrown in the towel, but just dropped off a percent or two thinking, well, listen, I've really not let myself down here. People will be talking about how brilliantly I've played, and I can leave it at that, but she, she had something about her that got her through against Serena, who wasn't obviously wasn't at her very best, but didn't exactly underperform either. I thought it was an amazing match. It was it was fantastic, and to sit there uh, and call that courtside, you know, we all had a bit of egg on our face, really, all trying to make our predictions and safely predicting that Serena would win in straight and she'd had a great fortnight. Uh, but, yeah, I loved the game of Kerber. I thought she executed it beautifully. It did not look overawed by the situation at all. Just kept the face, kept playing the next point. Yes, yeah, she'd uh, have, you know, great moments and then she'd have moments where um, even she was probably maybe even questioning her self-belief, but she just played the next point really, really well. And I reckon she could feel the love. I mean, clearly the crowd on Rod Laver were wanting the underdog to get up and win her first Grand Slam. So she would have felt that on the weekend. Um, you know, Serena, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, 46 unforced errors. I think she threw in six double faults, which, you know, we don't often see. She came to the net a hell of a lot, Serena. We don't normally see that. She's able to dictate so much from the baseline. But I reckon just, you know, the observations of Patrick Moritoglu, her coach, would have been... Gee, Kerber uh, just gets great angle. She can really, you know, that lefty serve, uh, her backhand cross court uh, really, you know, sort of dips, yeah, particularly going back into that juice court. And I think Serena had the mindset of, gee, I, I don't know if I can go toe to toe. I mean, she's really giving me the runaround. I might need to get in there and close these points off. But she's never been the most natural volleyer. She doesn't look comfortable volleying Serena. So even for the world's best, you know. <laughs> As good as she is and as intimidating as she can be, and a lot of the opponents are probably beaten before they even get out and play her, 
she now has to go away and think, okay, I've, I've got to add some elements or I've got to tighten up certain elements in my game. I can't take it for granted that I'm just going to be rolling along as the world number one at 34. So I think it was great for tennis on the weekend. And, you know, Kerber hopefully gives a bit of self-belief to these other girls who failed here in Melbourne. Uh, but I've got a real opportunity to maybe win a slam with Serena getting a bit older and a bit more vulnerable. Yeah, well, you gave us Serena's stats there, Brett. I think uh, I should probably clarify that Serena did actually underperform, but at least part of that was down to the performance of Kerber. Has nobody told Serena Williams that when you're a top-class sports person as she is, you're supposed to be a bad loser? She was going around. She was. She seemed to be over the other side of the net, hugging and congratulating her opponent within about a second of the winning shot being hit. <laughs> Well, it's always been a bit of a myth about the Williams sisters. And, you know, we've had a lot of talk back on SEM, the station I work for here today, uh, 24-hour sport. So you can imagine it's been a big talking point. And you know, some people um, you know, saying, gee, uh, amazingly gracious. We don't normally see that from Serena. We don't see Serena really credit her opponent. Normally, it's, you know, because I didn't play well or I had an injury, I wasn't feeling 100%. And then people were saying, well, how genuine was she? Um, and I... Yeah, it's interesting when you talk to the media contingent across the last fortnight who are coming from all parts of the globe to cover Serena Williams. Um, there are those who, <laughs> who have often questioned uh, how genuine she actually is. But it's a tough one. Um, you know, I think there's always been a bit of a myth. Maybe it'll come out one day in a documentary, you know, the insights into the Williams uh, family with Serena and Venus. But look, you know, certainly from the outside, uh, she handled herself really well and uh, I went into a press conference just after and I felt like there was some genuine recognition uh, for Angelique and that she was genuinely happy for it because it's so hard to actually make a Grand Slam final and to win one. I mean, so many players only get that one little opportunity. So, yeah, I think we can only take it on face value, but there's always been that this speculation, I suppose. What would the, the people who are speculating that she's not being genuine, what exactly do they mean by that? I mean, she's just been beaten by, she's been beaten in a Grand Slam final, so of course she's not happy. So, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, and in fairness, I suppose I was making this point about Djokovic, sometimes he's rubbed me up the wrong way because I feel he over-elaborates when he, he congratulates opponents on shots, such as he did with Federer in the semi-final when he was two sets to love up. I sometimes feel there's more gamesmanship at play there than actual genuine uh, warmth or whatever it might be. But with, with Serena, what, the people who say that she's not being genuine, what are, they, what are they claiming that she is being, if you know what I mean? What would her motivation be to, to pretend to be really nice if she isn't actually feeling that way? Well, I think it's I think it's the media who have had a lot to do with her over the years. Who I mean, you know, to think she's done seven press conferences. I mean, it's amazing how much media these players actually do. But <laughs> you know, some media conferences she comes in and she's extremely engaging. Other media conferences she'll come in and um, you know basically gives the media nothing and you know just plays a dead bat to everything. Doesn't want to be there. Can maybe be a little bit rude sometimes. I think, I think people over the years have just wondered who is the real Serena Williams. They've never been quite sure. And you read different articles from time to time. There's times where she can be fantastic to speak to and listen to. And there are other times where, you know, she can appear to be a bit ungracious and a bit obnoxious and a bit rude. And she's had her, had her moments on court and had her moments off court. So I think the legacy of, and of Serena will be really interesting when she leaves the game. People, people recognise her as a, a fine champion. Um, but I think the media has just been a bit confused sometimes, some of the messages they've received uh, when it comes to Serena when she opens her mouth and you know, question whether you know, she is genuine or not genuine. Okay, listen, Brett, it's been great. Brett Phillips from SEN Radio, great talking to you again during the tournament. Thanks a million for your help. Pleasure, Alan, anytime.
to the final and on in again. And here to be sent off. He's going to be yellow card. I can't speak. Oh, what about that? Send him off. Send the dirty guys off. You'll ball this game, Campbell. I can't speak. Yeah, I gotta say, the journalists who refuse to accept Serena Williams's post-match grace, I think maybe need to look at themselves a little bit more there. I don't really understand what more she could have done there. Uh, she generally... Wins a lot of tournaments. She lost this one. She reacted really well. And people are like, mm, yeah. Yeah, sometimes you don't have to look at uh, a person's reaction through the prism of everything that that person has done in the past. Sometimes it's just nice. It's it's the right thing to do just to be able to say, well, on this particular occasion, you've behaved very well. And congratulations to you on that. Murphy, you look like, the, you look like you've got that face on you. Really happy, happy head. Mm? of somebody who's about to release a special bonus podcast tomorrow. Oh, that face, yeah. Or today, if you're Sorry. listening on Tuesday. It could be out now, for all I know. I don't know what time you're listening to this ad. Tuesday morning, we will have a Six Nations preview podcast out with uh, special uh, content separate to the podcast later on in the week. Standalone Six Nations preview with uh, some massive names there. So we're looking forward to getting that one out for you. Uh, a lot of lovely pieces being written and broadcast about Terry Wogan in the last couple of days, one of Ireland's most popular ever broadcasters can you have a pretty early memory of watching Wogan in action well I used to watch him a lot and then when I was down in my nana's house she used to watch his TV show um, so I'm pretty sure I, I saw him do that drunk George Best interview live that's a long yeah that's the um, long time ago and the David Icke interview <laughs> live harsh enough from Wogan in that <laughs> they're laughing at you not with you <laughs> oh that was a, that, that was that quote yeah that was pretty harsh uh, yeah it's funny um that uh, most of his work, obviously, most of his reputation is based on his radio work, and I don't know if I ever heard his radio show um, because it was on like BBC Radio Two, which mm. I never used to listen to. But I saw his uh, ill-fated, uh, ill-suited television formats, uh, Wogan and Blankly Blank, and uh, what a lovely man he was. That's uh, a lovely man with an edge, though, judging by that comment, uh, David Ike. Well, Ike was kind of going on in a way. He was getting up Terry Wogan's nose at that point. He lost his. He lost his cool a little bit. Um, generally speaking, he wouldn't wouldn't have been like that, Owen. Uh, well, that's about it. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, guys. And just remember, Ken, successful people ask better questions. And as a result, 
they get better. Is that Tony Robbins or Vince Lombardi? Tony Robbins. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.